On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss the latest news, talk about an update to the ISMP High Alert Drug List, review the 2024 Joint Commission Patient Safety Goals, and in our focus segment, we have a panel discussion of current ASC issues with the staff of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies at their January semi-annual retreat. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. We would like to thank our sponsor, Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers. Trivalence. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable data insights. MedServe, which is the only digital narcotic cabinet specifically designed and priced for surgery centers, helping standardize processes and compliance, eliminate paper logs, and prevent drug diversion. And Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. Welcome to episode 212 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for February 9th, 2024. Recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York and Hilton Head Island. This is Sue Cronkite, co-host of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Operations Manager for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. We'd like to remind our listeners that the ASC regulatory environment is a rapidly evolving landscape and the material presented in this episode is based on the most current information available as of the date of recording. As such, it is important to recognize that this information may be subject to change, and we advise all ASCs to stay up to date with the latest regulations and guidelines issued by their relevant regulatory bodies. And joining me today is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and one of the most respected experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. With over 30 years of experience, Mr. Gailey has authored over 10 books on the ASC industry and is a sought-after speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. So we're recording from our condo in Hilton Head, South Carolina, Sue, and the weather's been relatively good. It hasn't, mm-hmm. It's been a little bit chilly here, but uh, yeah. we've been enjoying our trip down here. A lot of good food, and that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons that it's taken us so long to record this episode, I think. <laughs> uh, we've also been very busy. There's been a lot going on. We have a mm-hmm. uh, number of centers that are opening up, we are picking up new centers all the time, and of course, uh, it's uh, a challenging time, as I'm sure all of you out there that are, are listening mm-hmm. to us well know. So, yeah, it's been a um, bit of a working vacation, but... Beautiful view out of our window. We can see the ocean and the sun's shining. So, and we get food down here that we can't get at home. So, (laughs) very important. Of course, we miss our doggy. That's our. That's the toughest part. Poor Rosie had to stay home. And of course, we came down here right after our uh, January semi-annual retreat. Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies uh, does uh, semi-annual retreats where we get together and talk about various things in the industry. Kind of uh, reconnect since we are a virtual company and uh, you know policies for the. Uh, for the next six months, especially with regard to quality improvement programs, infection control, safety, and all the other programs that we manage for our clients. Uh, So we were able to record a uh, a panel discussion among our 20 people during that 
a retreat. And uh, unfortunately, the, the recording, of course, whenever we do that is never never great, but uh, we'll do our best to, uh, to make sure it's uh, at least uh, listenable. And we are, we're probably going to have the same problem down here. Of course, we're, we care. We have three mini studios and uh, our miniest studio, our smallest <laughs> studio is the one that we're using here. Uh, so we do apologize for any quality issues. I think this is sort of vacation speak, so listenable. Yeah, I, I know. know I just made <laughs> just made that new word up. Yeah. <laughs> so let's uh, let's uh, jump right into the news, Sue. What's going on with the ISMP? So there was an updated ISMP list of high alert medications. They added transexamic acid, which is used in a variety of hemorrhagic conditions to control bleeding, and the errors are often related to storage issues and mix up with lookalike medication vials. When this medication is accidentally administered via a neuraxial route, there's a mortality rate of 50% due to its being a potent neurotoxin. So we put a link to the ISMP article that explains the process and um, linking that, that new list. Also, the ISMP conducted surveys in both 2018 and again in 2023. The following is a list of medications which had the greatest increase in respondents who considered them to be high alert medications. So it's something that they're looking at. So it includes sterile water for injection, inhalation, and irrigation. It excludes um, pour bottles. And 52% actually thought this was a high alert medication in 2018, and 77% thought it was um, in the 2023 survey. Another one was potassium phosphates injection, epiprostanol, methotrexate, oral non-oncology use, oxytocin, IV, and epinephrine, IM, and subcutaneous. So it's interesting to me that a lot of people thought those were already on the high alert medication list. So an interesting side note, they sent out a survey asking for opinions on what medications should be added, and about half of the suggested additions were already on the list. So I just wanted to make a note that it's important to be familiar with the list and have a center-specific list of high-alert medications. And taking it a step further, make sure you put safeguards in place to prevent those errors that they that can happen. Yeah, and, and while this uh, article is really uh, focused on high alert medications, we do mm-hmm. want to remind our listeners that, of course, uh, if you uh, you should always have a list of the uh, high alert medications as well as the uh, confused drug names, which used to be called the look-alike, sound-alike drugs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a common uh, situation that I find, Sue, when I'm doing a survey or a mock survey is that they'll post the list right from the ISMP yes, rather than the list of the drugs that they actually mm-hmm, have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I highly recommend that you parse through the list from ISMP yeah. and create a, a specific list that only has those drugs that, that you have on site. And you should be posting these uh, this list anywhere you have the medications. Mm-hmm. And then doing the things, you know, the tall man lettering, if it's a look, if it's a confused drug name, right. not storing them right next to each other, but then storing the high alert medications, at least in an area where people are aware, okay, to be careful when they're, they're um, grabbing these things. So, uh, And of course, uh, employee education to remind them of the importance and why we have these lists and to, to, to consult those lists periodically, as well as, as you said, you know, the correct labeling of, of all those drugs. I think... This is an easy citation during a survey, mm-hmm. uh, and it's also a very easy fix. And yeah. and to the point that was made um, it, with that uh, the new drug that was added, um, you know the consequences of using the wrong drug yeah. or using it inappropriately or improperly. Mm-hmm. 
uh, could be, you know, quite catastrophic. Um, and, you know, let's put another push in, Sue, for uh, one of our favorite topics, making sure that you uh, spend some money to engage a pharmacy consultant. We're actually going to be interviewing a couple pharmacists within the next couple of weeks for uh, various issues. One of our new sponsors, MedServe, uh, has uh, quite a bit of uh, dealings with the, the pharmacy industry, and I think it's going to be very interesting to, to interview them uh, at least every three months on, on various pharmacy topics. So we're looking forward to that. And just following up on that, also, make sure with all of the medication shortages that we have that whenever you get in a new medication that either looks a little bit different than the old one did maybe you're replacing one medication with another or a different strength be very careful that your staff is well aware of it and that it's labeled in a very obvious way and to prevent errors. Yeah, we've been hearing quite a bit uh, that the labeling sometimes gets confusing or people assume based on the look of a label mm-hmm. uh, that a drug is a certain drug or a certain concentration and they're, yeah. they're getting surprised. So um, I, I, that's a very good point. And let's also mention at this point the importance of making sure that you're using single-dose drugs only on a single patient and multi-dose drugs uh, uh, have to be properly handled labeled, and of course, they cannot be drawn up within the patient care area. Mm-hmm. And I believe that the uh, Joint Commission has new uh, 2024 patient safety goals, correct? Well, they have 2024 patient safety goals. I believe they're kind of the same as <laughs> 2023, so new might be stretching it. Yeah. But they're all very important things. That's so right. I still, That's right. we felt like it was really important to talk about them anyways. I mean, a lot of times it's just those same old things that keep popping right. up, and, and if it's a safety concern, then... Kind of sad that they they are the same goals. Mm-hmm. Um, you yeah. know that these are issues that we can never that resolve. Still seeing, yeah. yeah. So they have a list of of some of the main issues, and then just a, a little um, example of ways to prevent that. So identify patients correctly. Use at least two ways to identify patients. For example, use the patient's name and date of birth. This is done to make sure that each patient gets the correct medication and treatment. Of course, use medicine safely. And there's three different citation notes that they had here before procedure label medicines that are not labeled for example medicines and syringes cups and basins do this in the area where medicines and supplies are set up and you see that a lot right people not labeling their syringes it is probably one of the most common um, pharmacy uh, citations that we have and take extra care with patients who take medications to thin their blood Record and pass along correct information about a patient's medicines. Find out what medicines the patient is taking. Compare those medicines to new medications given to the patient. Give the patient written information about the medications that they need to take. And tell them it is important to bring their up-to-date list of medicines every time they visit a doctor. Right. I think one of the issues here, especially, is in those organizations that do not have electronic medical records, this is quite a challenge. Uh Uh, When you have an electronic medical record, then when you get that new list or when you talk to the patient, you can quickly update an existing list on the computer. If if it's manual or if it's on paper, you still have to do the same thing. It's just a lot more time and a lot more writing. I think this is one of those areas, Sue, in particular, where EMRs really make your life mm-hmm. that much easier yeah. but it does not that the lack of having a uh, an emr system of course doesn't excuse you doesn't excuse you from uh, to make sure it's complete the next one is preventing infection use hand cleaning guidelines from the center for disease control and prevention or the world health organization set goals for improving hand cleaning it's and usually again, said hand hygiene it feels weird to yeah. say hand cleaning but well and again th- this has been on the list for years and years and the mm-hmm. fact that we still have an issue with it is mm-hmm. is quite troubling um and this is probably a good time to remind 
uh, centers and infection control coordinators that there is a lot of information up at the centers for at the CDC website, mm-hmm. uh, including posters, you know, yeah. that you can print out, educational programs, uh, videos that you can uh, mm-hmm. can access. And I, I think it's a really good idea just to kind of uh, shake things up a little bit, you know, yep. change those signs around. Don't let them get too yellowed in the uh, restrooms or wherever you uh, Yeah, because, you know, you develop them. a blind spot when you see a sign mm-hmm. forever. And after a while, you don't even see it anymore. And make sure the people that are doing the surveillance try to switch them up if you can right. or at least don't be obvious about it. You know, because you really want to catch people and, and get somebody who will be honest and and you know, isn't going to try to be a nice guy and, and like they don't want to write anybody up because you don't have to have your name, but you have to make sure you're really being accurate about the numbers you get. Well, and, and to that point, you know, when I as a surveyor walk in and I, I read hand hygiene surveillance worksheets and they show 100% compliance, I just yeah. don't believe them, especially if I walk through and I find all kinds mm-hmm. of problems. Yeah. Um, so it's almost impossible for you uh, to have 100% compliance. Mm-hmm. So if you do have 100% compliance, I can assure you the surveyors are going to question that. Yeah, especially because you should be watching, you know, before gloving, after removing your gloves, before patient contact, after patient contact. So there's all these opportunities. Right. Or after touching contaminated equipment, you could have that one. Well, and, and people are going to forget. I forget. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, it, it it happens. So even, you know, people that are highly compliant are probably going to, mm-hmm. you know, maybe miss it, you know, 10 to 15 percent of yeah. the time. Yeah. And I, I guess another point I would make is that there are sometimes very humorous signs, too. Uh, and videos, which might be helpful. You know, a little bit of humor in, in a situation like this could be uh, helpful in reminding mm-hmm. people because it catches people's attention. Or and maybe, people. Sue, you should have cute puppy pictures and involve that. Yeah. Not quite sure how, like, after you pet your puppy and yeah. <laughs> hygiene. And I think people, patients are watching for this That's now, right. too. And we're encouraging patients to mm-hmm. watch for it and, and, and to call yeah. it out. Yeah. So it's, you know, be obvious about your hand hygiene, too. Right. Um, the next one is improve health care equity. Improving health care equity is a quality and patient safety priority. For example, health care disparities in the patient population are identified and a written plan describes ways to improve health care equity. And the last one is preventing mistakes in surgery. So make sure that the correct surgery is done on the correct patient and at the correct place on the patient's body. So that's, you know, doing a good timeout, right. among other things. Mark the correct place on the patient's body where the surgery is to be done and pause before the surgery to make sure that a mistake is not being made. And, and again, we cannot overemphasize this. It seems to me that whenever there is a near miss, whenever there is an actual uh, wrong side, wrong patient, uh, uh, wrong something surgery, it is almost inevitably as a result of the timeout being done. And yet, when I go out and do a survey, I would say maybe 25% of the time, this, the timeout's not done properly. And this is in a situation where I'm observing it. And you would think yeah. that the, you know, that they would be extra cautious to make sure the timeout was done properly. And, and I say one of the biggest issues is that the people are not paying attention. They haven't stopped. They're not, yes. they're not consulting their notes to make sure that indeed, uh, you know, the information that's being yeah. uh, verbally uh, presented agrees to the, uh, to the record, especially when you're talking about the anesthesiologist and the surgeon themselves. And again, the anesthesiologist tends to be, and I'm sorry to pick on anesthesiologists, but they tend to be the one uh, who is often not uh, anesthesiologist or CRNA uh, who is not paying attention. And that's because, of course, they're getting the patient ready for the surgery. And uh, But a timeout is a timeout. You need to stop. Yeah, it becomes so routine. And people just have gone through it so many times. And then if you haven't had any mistakes, 
it's easy for people to just not focus. They just want to get through that, get that checked off their list. But, you know, it takes just one time, and, right. and people are going to take it very seriously. And doing it, I know you as a surveyor can kind of tell when people aren't oh. really doing it all the time. You know, they, yeah, it's very mechanical. They all say, oh, I'll just be careful <laughs> when they're, but, you know, the more important part is, is preventing a bad outcome. I, I should point out, too, that uh, we've seen an increase in the number of near misses. Now, this could just mm -hmm. be a, a coincidence, but within the last, uh, I'd say last month, we've yeah. had quite a number of near misses. Now, now, and that's good that they were caught, yeah. um, and it's good that a process was in place. But, uh, again, the point should be made that, you know, the reason that we really praise people for catching a near miss and for documenting a near miss is that we hope to learn from it. So mm -hmm. if you're not familiar with, um, you know, how to document a near miss, uh, you might want to, um, you know, read up on that. It's a very clear goal of the accrediting organizations to encourage those. Yeah, and really congratulate people when they stop an incident from happening right. by catching the near miss. And even if somebody brings something up, a nurse speaks up and says, oh, I don't think that's right, doctor. Right. And then you find out, oh, no, the doctor was right. She was mistaken. It doesn't matter. They the should fact never that be. she was, right. you know, that's he or point. she was able to speak up. So you want to always encourage that every member of the team to just speak up. It takes a second to verify it, and you could be avoiding a big problem. Yeah, I, that's a really good point, too. I think, um, you know, trying to make sure that everybody on the team feels safe to be able to do it. And when they, when that, when that person who brought, who questioned it mm -hmm. made a mistake, which is going to happen, yeah. they should never be um, ostracized for that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So as I mentioned at the beginning of the segment, uh, we do a semi-annual treat for ambulatory healthcare strategies. And it's, it's a great opportunity. We have uh, about 25 employees now. And I think, uh, well, we have about 14 of them on site, and the rest were uh, with so, us virtually. Not everybody was there the whole time. Yeah. Uh, we have a pretty uh, fancy setup uh, with our, uh, our uh, we call it a studio, but it's actually like a conference area. And uh, uh, we, we have a great opportunity. It always uh, seems to be more than enough food um, at these <laughs> retreats. Always, and we never think, you know, yeah, we never realize that we're getting too much food. I, yeah. But, you know, and people pitch in and bring some good soup and chili and stuff. So it was oh, nice. It's, it's a and great it's thing. It's just nice bonding. And, and I really do, I, the reason we talk about it on the podcast, too, is how important it is. Uh, now, you know, we take three days every uh, six months, and, that, and we know that's a luxury to be able to do that. Uh, but even, you know, getting away for a half a day uh, or, you know, doing a retreat within your organization, however you uh, do it, the importance cannot be overemphasized of us spending some time to get together and just talk through what's going on in your organization. And it is an opportunity for us to, uh, to get together to revise our processes, set goals and objectives for the next year. We spend a lot of time during the retreats revising our our policies, that you know, our templated policies, our forms, uh, and especially the minutes and uh, minutes templates for our quality improvement, risk management, uh, infection control, and the governing body minutes. So, um, but during uh, the January retreat, we did have an opportunity to uh, pull the team together to talk about some major issues that are confronting both the industry and our clients. So let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll have that panel discussion from the January 2024 retreat. With the rapid changes occurring in the ASC industry, the exodus of experienced ASC administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers, there is an increasing demand for quality leadership education. 
That's where our industry-leading boot camps come in. In 2021, we introduced our administrator boot camp and the director of nursing boot camp, and in 2023, the business office manager boot camp. These boot camps have become the industry standard for ASC leadership training, and with over 225 graduates, lead the industry in mentored virtual training. Live virtual training for the administrator boot camp occurs every January and July, and the director of nursing boot camp is October and May. Our new business office manager boot camp will continue in the spring of 2024. There are also on-demand versions of each boot camp for those who simply can't attend the live virtual programs. All boot camps, including the on-demand boot camps, include access to resources, membership in the ASC Central Patron Program, copies of John's latest books, access to credentialing, conditions for coverage, and other recorded training programs, and of course, our regular drop-in Zoom sessions where you can ask questions and interact with other patron and boot camp members. Our programs also include AEU credits for those that are CASC certified. Our programs are comprehensive and taught by the nation's leading ASC experts and are designed for all levels of leadership, from experienced leaders who want to enhance their skills or pass the CASC exam, or those who are new to the industry and wish to learn how to run an ASC. For more information about our live, virtual, and on-demand programs, visit ASC Central at asc-central.com. Or you can call us at 585-594-1167 or email us at info at ASCPodcast.com for more information. This is John Gailey. I'm here at our semi-annual retreat for ambulatory healthcare strategies. We hold this retreat twice a year. And uh, loyal listeners of the ASC podcast with John Gailey know about this because we uh, we always record a, a session from our retreats. This year, uh, we have the largest contingent of people. I haven't even, anybody know how many people are with us? I counted 19 uh, yesterday and the day before. So I Tony says we have, I didn't 19, count today. <laughs> we have 19 people on showing the growth of our organization over the the last couple of years, what was it in 2019, just before the pandemic, we had less than 10. And some were added the, the next day. So, uh, you know, so there's over 20 total. So we've been here for three days um, discussing the future of our services to our clients, as well as how we're going to provide those services. And I just want to publicly thank everybody in this room and, and remotely through Zoom. Uh, for the incredible opportunity we've had to talk about everything that we do at Ambulatory Healthcare Strategy, as well as the podcast and ASC Central. And this has been a very productive time together. And uh, we're recording this in the last two hours of the uh, of this uh, of this retreat. So I told everybody beforehand that I'm going to have two questions, two questions, and uh, we're going to ask for volunteers. And the first question is, what are some of what are some of the challenges that we are seeing among our clients right now when we're out and visiting them? And I think the first person that wants to speak is Alex. Alex, go for it. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I always want to speak, right? I'm not introverted at all. Um, so definitely registration documents have been an issue. Um, and I, I think this is a an easy one for surveyors to pick up on. And it's, it's a... Uh, it's not an item that you can just drop and say, okay, I fixed 
my registration documents and they're fixed forever because these these um these documents change um and and more importantly there's there's updated requirements for them and some of the requirements involve links that break over time and so you have to update those or you have turnover or a new owner um so keeping those updated is is definitely a challenge and patients have to be offered these documents they have to go out out to patients or they have to be posted or they have to be uh, offered at least um depending on the document and uh some of the ones that i find the most issues with commonly patient rights and responsibilities definitely just keeping that up to date um advanced directive policies make sure that doing the right thing at the registration desk and then um physician ownership disclosure um you know make sure that that's there as well and any state specific items that a center might have to deal with yeah and when it comes to uh the, the two areas that we tend to have state specific regulations are advanced directives where your state might require you to hand a document so in New York State uh and in actually quite a number of states there is a requirement that you uh provide the um, your patients with a copy of the um, right. healthcare proxy. And, and, and of course, never encourage a, a patient to fill that out while they're there. I, I, we should point that out. That it's for information only. Um, and Alex, I think another issue that we tend to find too is that the privacy notice sometimes gets confused with the patient rights and responsibilities because the Department of Health and Human Services, which provides an example of patient privacy notice right at the top, says your rights and responsibilities as a patient uh, here. And it looks like a patient rights and responsibilities from that standpoint, but it really isn't. So in your waiting area, as Alex was saying, you need to see or have posted a patient rights and responsibilities as well as a patient privacy notice. Yep. And then you have to hand the patient a copy of both of those documents, or at least offer it to them, uh, a copy of the ownership disclosure. And again, follow the state requirements because some states have very specific requirements with regard to that. Um, and then also anti-discrimination poster has to be up there. The 15 languages has to be posted somewhere. In other words, it has to be assigned in 15 different languages that encourage your patients, if they do not speak English as their primary language, to point to the language that they speak so that you can then get an interpreter. While we're on the subject of interpreters, it's important for you to remember that the anti-discrimination requirements uh, require you to provide an interpreter, even if the patient insists that you use a family member. And the reason for that is you need to make sure that the information that you're transmitting, that's being transmitted from the healthcare provider to the patient is interpreted correctly. Not all family members can speak and uh, or, or understand the terminology, the medical terminology and be able to interpret it to the patients as well as, you know, if you have a relationship with your, uh, if the family member has a relationship with the, the, uh, the patient, um, they're not always, depending on the situation, likely to correctly interpret what's going on uh, to the patient. They might hold back something that's, that is uncomfortable for them to speak about. So I think one one compromise can be if the if the patient wants a family member to be there and to be interpreting, just let them know you have to cover yourself and you really want to make sure they get the accurate information. So you get an interpreter in there and their family member can, you know, verify if they're if they're having trouble trusting that or something like that. But you really have to make sure that you have somebody official in there. 
Right, and that's able to interpret healthcare uh, terminology. And it can be a staff member who, as long as it is their primary language or... It has to be a primary language. If it's yeah. secondary, they have to be bilingual, mm -hmm. uh, not just like a college or a high yeah, school level. Just... I think it's important to note that, you know, if, you, if, if when you're offering these interpretive services, if it's refused on the patient's part, that your staff knows to really document in that record that the services were offered but refused by the patient. And that could be said for any of the documents that have to be signed here. So if the patient refuses to sign the privacy, the acknowledgement of the privacy notice, the patient rights and responsibilities, the physician ownership, and the advanced directives, you need to get the signature. Hi, John. This is Mike D'Ambrosio. And one of the things that uh, I, I think centers have to be conscious of is the, the fact that they should be doing a chemical risk assessment. It's one thing to have the uh, SDS or the safety data sheet booklet in the center, but it's also a requirement, Triple HC will look for this, uh, that they're doing an assessment of those chemicals. There's forms and, and uh, templates out there that could be used, but it's really just a matter of uh, somebody basically writing down or uh, putting an index together of the chemicals that are used in the in the center and then doing a, a risk assessment based on an analysis of the uh, SDS or the safety data sheet. And going off of that, Mike, making sure that as they bring new chemicals and or new pharmaceuticals into the center, that they're updating it and then reviewing it at least annually. And while we're on that subject, remembering that all of the chemicals that you're using as uh, for cleaning a facility have to be approved by your infection control coordinator. So there should be a very Good tight point. system here for the notification uh, of the uh, of the person that maintaining the safety data sheets. Uh, as well as the infection control coordinator, and then, of course, updating the chemical risk assessment. Mike, um, and you and I talked about this earlier, we talked about this as a, as a big topic here at the, uh, at the retreat, that uh, surveyors are now starting to ask this question because, um, like uh, myself as a HHC surveyor, it is actually a line item for me to review the chemical risk assessment and make sure it's complete. While we're on the topic of OSHA requirements and chemical risk assessment, um, we are having some other challenges with regard to OSHA. Is that correct? Yeah, I think um, I think it tends to be, you know, kind of in the background uh, of a lot of centers. They have so much other pressing requirements and regulatory uh, edicts. Uh, but OSHA, you know, is is important to make sure that you know you're obviously the bloodborne pathogen. That seems to be a, a one that most centers are are well versed on. But things like ergonomic analysis for your uh, for your office workers, yeah, you know those those type of things to be incorporated into your safety program is really uh, an important facet of of what OSHA is going to be looking for. Again, OSHA could give you fines. It's very rare for an OSHA inspector to be, you know, in ASC, but a one complaint will would potentially trigger an OSHA inspection of your facility. So important to make sure you have your your safety program up to date and that you're uh, following the OSHA requirements. We don't want to talk too much about N95 masks, but that still is an issue now. And as we are coming into our, we're in the middle of uh, both the flu season and an increase in COVID, uh, we're starting to see more people using the N95 mask. We do want to remind our audience that uh, if you have somebody that is wearing this N95 mask in your organization or what, or if you hand out, and then 95 mask, you have to follow the OSHA requirements. There are three requirements. 
One is that the employee has to be fit tested for the very model that they are wearing. Second is you are required to do a employee health assessment. And the reason for that is that a N95 mask is a, a respirator. Second is that the employee has to have a employee health assessment to determine their ability to wear uh, an N95 mask, which is a respirator uh, for extended periods of time. And the third is that you have to have in place a respiratory protection program. Christina, you mentioned that clients uh, are sometimes challenged with getting their QI studies done in time. Now, we use the term QI studies because that's the AAAC requirement, but the, the, no matter whether you're accredited or if you just have Medicare certification, you are still required to do uh, performance improvement projects. But you've seen recently that some uh, centers are, are really yeah. challenged trying to get this. I think people are making it harder than it needs to be. I think it's something as simple as identifying a problem. Mm -hmm. Honestly, you know, just sometimes even just listening to your staff being out on the floor, um, listening to the the problems in the day-to-days that are facing, that are your staff is facing with patients can give you a, a simple QI study. You know, something is not compliant with MPO status. Uh, I think also people are doing QI studies without realizing they're true. doing QI studies a, a lot point. and they just need to write it up. Now, as a surveyor, I often find that these <laughs> QI studies are, are dated like within a month or two of the survey. <laughs> um, so what are your thoughts about being better prepared? I know, uh, Christina, you were saying that you're, your finding centers are often challenged to get these together, partially because they over they, they overthink it, right? Mm -hmm. And then the second thing is that it's fair to say that right now people are just so busy uh, to be able to do it. Yeah. But Jenny, you had a counter argument, didn't you? I I I thought my clients right now, um, regardless of where they are in their accreditation cycle, a lot of my centers have found. And maybe that's more of just in the quality improvement program. We've had a better ability to identify, oh, we're already tracking this. Well, let's turn that into a QI study. My GI centers, pathology sign-offs are a problem everywhere. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I have multiple centers that are currently working on, uh, is, you're doing it anyways. Well, you know, you're you're tracking it as part of your nurse chart audits. You're working with your physicians to get those uh, sign offs done. Anyways, you're doing the work. We just have to write it up. Right. I think we've seen two sides of this. One is that sometimes people are so busy that they're not able to do a QI study or they don't realize they did a QI study or that it, it's not as complicated to write it up. The other side is that those organizations um, that they kind of have a little bit more experience perhaps doing the QI studies um, are finding a lot of opportunities right now because of all the challenges that we're facing uh, in the industry. Um, the other one, my centers, as they're preparing for surveys and we're doing mock surveys, we're finding a lot of opportunities for improvement in the areas that we already know that a lot of centers have problems, safe medication administration and our anesthesiologists' safe injection practices are always a yeah. problem, we know, in, in hand hygiene. Um, so, again, if those are things that as you're preparing for a survey that you're really focused, I mean, you should be focusing on them every day. But <laughs> with being cognizant of a survey coming up, a lot of centers, I think, focus on the easy citation areas um, and, and, you know, the commonly cited 
CMS citations that are put out every year. Um, and that's an area that, again, we're tracking it. Let's do a QI study on it. You're probably re-educating your anesthesiologist or, and your other staff on a daily basis to uh, wash their hands, to do <laughs> to do their uh, scrub the hub. Um, and, you know, uh, if you're already doing that, make it into a QI study. Don't make it more complicated than it needs to be. I want to go back to something, uh, Jenna, that you mentioned earlier about pathology. Um, we better actually mention what the rule is, because as a surveyor, I will tell you that uh, it is not infrequent that I go out on a survey and I find that uh, a challenge that they're having is getting the physician to sign off on a pathology report. And the argument that I'm always hearing, you know, people, please, by the way, as a surveyor, please don't argue with me when it comes to something that's this state straightforward. Um, Jenna, why don't you reiterate what the regulation is with regard to uh, reporting or to signing off on pathology reports? That the final pathology report that it, the center is getting back from the lab needs to be signed off with an acknowledgement from the provider that performed that procedure. But Jenna, the doctor gets a copy of the pathology report. Why do I have to get a signature? Because that's your way in your medical record to document that you've assured that the physician has seen the report. If there's something that needs to be communicated to the patient, that that conversation has happened. Right. And, and that, that's a very important element. And, and by the way, this has sometimes resulted in even condition level citations uh, in organizations if they're not signing off on that. So the point of the, the matter is we understand that both the surgery center and the doctor are going to get a copy of it. Our responsibility as a surgery center is that we have proof that the patient has had that communication from the doctor. That's that's how that signature, uh, that's that's why that acknowledgement is included in the pathology report. Judy, you are a, a medical record consultant. You are uh, doing a lot of medical record consulting um, projects for our, our various clients here. Uh, can you talk a little bit about some of the things that you've seen in the multitude of uh, medical record reviews that you've done in the past year? Um, some of them are pretty universal. Like, I, I'm never going to go in and look at records and not find anything, just because human error exists. Right. Um, you know, so the little, oh, you forgot to sign this, or, oh, you know, the, those are understandable and easy. The things that surprise me are when I look at 25 and they all have the same problem. Uh, there isn't an acknowledgement of advanced directive. Doesn't show in the chart. Well, we do that. We have it's right here in this, it's right here in their paper chart. That's fabulous. Can you put it in your EMR? Because that's what somebody's going to look at. Or when we talk to them about it when they come, I'm sure you do. But I need them to sign that you did, and I need to have that in there. So that was always a big surprise because I thought that was something everybody knew. Well, and and then, you know, you as ner the nurses in our, our group here know that if it's not documented, it's it in the And the same thing comes to the medical record. When the documentation, when you're in court trying to defend the medical record, if there is no acknowledgement there or there's no copy of the document that you relied upon, as far as the court is concerned, it did not happen. And that's something I wish I could teach right. people is that think of what you're doing down the road in a courtroom. And you're doing, you're busy. You have, you know, you're you're doing it and, and you don't think about this as a legal document. Everything I say on here matters. So if you don't have a date or you don't have a time notated or for a for a med, for anything, for any order that isn't acknowledged correctly, 
you didn't do it. It didn't happen. That patient right. didn't have the benefit of whatever that pharmaceutical was. Um, and I and I do get feedback of, well, you know, that's that's not important. Well, that's why I wouldn't be telling you if it wasn't. Right. Um, and I, that's what you want me to do is find all that little stuff that you just forgot about because you're busy, because there's ten thousand things to do. Um, that's why I'm there is to point out. I know it seems small, but let's change our form. And that's usually all it is. Let's put a little spot on your form to remind them that they have to write this down. Um, I mean, nobody's doing anything malicious. It's just got, what's got love. What oh, gets love. lost in the show? During our uh, retreat here, Judy, we have been talking as a group about, uh, first of all, you, you have an actual degree in medical record consulting. Can you just mention what that degree is? Because a lot of people probably that are listening are not aware of that this is an actual profession with a master's degree level. Yeah, I, I needed to go and get a master's degree. Um, in addition, in medical health information technology is is what it's called. Um, and if you're in New York, and I know I know that not all of our listeners are, but if you're in New York, you actually have the the regulation. You're you need to have someone that's a medical record technologist, and that could be someone in your in your office, in your in your billing, in your office staff. But you have to make sure that they either have that degree or they've set for the the test. It's an RHAI. IA tests, and they have to have that, or what they're doing, although probably useful, doesn't fill your right your obligation. So I had to go and get that so that I could. So if you don't have someone internally, you... yeah, there are. I'm sure there there are people internally that have the education or are set for the test, and that's great. But, but then if you have somebody internally doing it that doesn't have that um, credential or that education, then what they're doing, although helpful, doesn't meet the criteria. What one of the conversations we've had is that perhaps uh we, we know we have nursing chart audits uh -huh. but are, that are often kind of mislabeled because it leaves the impression that the purpose of that audit was to review the nurses' charts. But really what's occurring in most of these nursing chart audits is a review of the whole chart to see if it's complete. Right. Yeah. Uh, and not all of the items there would actually be the responsibility of the nurse. Exactly. And and we've been and we're going to talk about staffing issues in two seconds here. Ugh. But uh, we know that we are challenged right now. And one of the questions we are, are asking is, 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 is there a more efficient way of doing that? You know, perhaps there is a role for an outside consultant coming in on a regular basis and doing a review of the medical records, not necessarily totally in lieu of the nursing chart audit, but as a supplement to the nursing chart audit, and perhaps to reduce the number of nursing chart audits that are being done and supplement that with hopefully a very efficient and, and cost-effective uh, solution that being to have a medical record uh, consultant, somebody that has a medical legal background looking at that record uh, and identifying particular issues that might come up. And yeah. we may find that that somebody internal might not. Is it, it should, maybe it's just a half an hour education that they have to have yeah. to learn this one thing. And, and I find that if they understand the why of what they're doing, they remember to do it. And sometimes that's all it is. You know, either have me come in or, or have me talk to your nurse manager so that she can give you that little bit of education. But because I see it from outside eyes, and I think from inside eyes, they wouldn't see it quite as well. The, the other thing we kind of talked about with the nursing chart audit, this retreat, was that that doesn't necessarily, that's not one that you necessarily create and then never change. Yeah, life moves. That, Things happen. You know, as you identify problems that might not be identified necessarily on your nurse chart audit, um, that you revise that chart, you, you know, you look at that chart audit occasionally and say, you know, we're finding our, we're 100% compliant with the items we're currently looking at all the time. Maybe we're looking at the wrong 
criteria. I mean, there's some things that always you want to make sure because they are such important, <laughs> like making sure your H&Ps and your pathology, those types of things that you absolutely need to have in your chart, your um, operative note and the, you know, the common problems. But you might notice one day, hey, we're having an issue that our... That allergies aren't being uh, documented along with their reactions, which is something I find a lot. Mm -hmm. They'll list the allergies, but don't tell. Then update your nurse chart audit to mm -hmm. include it if it doesn't already. And maybe you're tracking some things that you never have a problem with. Maybe you can take those other items off and concentrate on the ones that are the one the problems you actually have. So if you are uh, interested in exploring the possibility of using an outside consultant, certainly reach out to myself. Uh, send us an email at info at ASCPodcast.com and we will put you in touch with people. Uh, Tony Lyons. Tony is uh, an old friend of mine who uh, now works part-time, though it seems like, Tony, you're working more, more closer to full-time with us. Uh, but you're working with some of our newer clients and clients that are starting up. And I want to transition to a question that we're having about anesthesia. We don't, we know right now that we're having uh, an anesthesia crisis uh, is, is the term that we're hearing bantered around a bit. And the reason I come to you on this one first is because the people that are having the biggest problem are the ones that are starting up because they don't even have an anesthesia firm uh, to talk about. So can you talk a little bit about some of the challenges that your clients who are starting up surgery centers are running into? Yeah, sure. Uh, we don't have any answers because right. it's a crisis uh, that is across the whole country. Uh, we have um, uh, new clients in um, Virginia, uh, here in New York, and uh, that are looking at starting up services and just trying to figure out how they can have anesthesia at their facilities uh, to keep the surgeries moving effectively. And um, uh, they're, they're not getting the number of anesthesiologists they need. Uh, and there's a big challenge, of course, because Medicare has reduced those rates so much, uh, followed and sued by other payers. So they're looking at different structures. Uh, they come to us about structures. We have some recommendations, but that's really something you need to talk to an attorney about. Uh, how to structure those arrangements. Uh, also, though, we're seeing them in, in older clients, too. Yes. Having to reconfigure what they've done for years, uh, even, you know, in cases where there are some anesthesiologists that are in the partnership and um, just having to work out a new arrangement, employing them or setting up a separate company to employ them. And it's it's a it's a big and important issue. Uh, some states, of course, uh, can use CRNAs, but that's uh, certainly not a solution for all centers because, um, you know, uh, but and um, so, you know, that's uh, it's just something we're seeing out there that's a real issue uh, that you see in a lot of the literature. But uh, we're seeing a lot of clients that are really bumping into it in a in a uh, a real way. <laughs> One of the other things that we, we are going to have to be exploring as an industry is how are we going to handle situations where an anesthesiologist is just not going to be available? Uh, and there's two solutions to that. One is the use of CRNAs. Uh, and the possibility of doing conscious sedation. Lori uh, Rodericks is our Director of Clinical Services. She uh, um, is also a surveyor like myself with an accreditation organization. Lori, can you talk a little bit about um, conscious sedation? And Because we've been running into this uh, periodically now, making sure that our uh, nurses that are being asked to do conscious sedation are properly uh, trained 
and that they're properly supervised by whoever they're supervised, whoever is uh, charged with supervising them? Well, there are a number of programs out there that um, center leaders can look into um, sending their staff to um, unless they have an in-house program that should then be overseen by um, an anesthesia provider, whether it's an anesthesiologist or a, um, a CRNA, uh, because otherwise, if no one in-house is doing it, they'd have to go outside or contract with someone to come in and do the training. Um, there's certain criteria that those nurses um, have to meet uh, ahead of time, such as um, uh, ACLS training, uh, safe airway management, that sort of thing uh, that they should have um, already in place. But you want to look at your state regs because different states might have different regulations in regards to what conscious sedation um, is and what you know nurse administered sedation is. Um, there are societies out there that also um, look into this. And uh, you want to see that, um, you know, the whole thing is about patient safety. And I can't stress enough that if you do um, conscious sedation uh, administered by a registered nurse, the physician has to be trained as well because they are the ones that are ordering the medications. They should be uh, trained as well to uh, rescue a patient, to uh, notice signs of any kind of distress, and also are they're the they're the ones that are going to be assessing that patient ahead of time, looking at their airway, uh, doing a um, you know the assessment of that airway, their malampati, uh, their ASA scores, if there is no anesthesia provider in there. So this is a team approach. It's not just a nurse coming in and giving some Versed or fentanyl because the doctor wants it. You have to really be able to be prepared for worst case scenario um, and know that what you're doing is is appropriate. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, and surveyors are are looking toward uh, making sure that uh, nurse administered or RN administered conscious sedation is being done safely. So they're looking for uh, demonstration or documentation of the training, both, uh, as you mentioned, both of the uh, of the uh, the, the nurse as well as the uh, the, the uh, supervisor. Training and competency. Training and competency, thank you. Alex, another issue that's come up recently has been femto lasers and where they should be located. Do you want to address that issue? Sure, they should be located in laser rooms. I mean, yeah. I, I think most, <laughs> most specifically, oftentimes the problem is that that last word in that phrase is, a room right right um so and there are fgi guidelines the fgi guidelines really ashray 170 um that's a table in the back of that book does lay out certain requirements for a laser room um so it should meet those those laser room requirements the specific set of um requirements is based upon which fgi guidelines your state has adopted. Obviously, CMS has one that's adopted. That's 2008, so that's quite, quite old. Um, there are newer versions, um, but by and large, 
that's that's the biggest issue is is making sure that you're you're doing these procedures in it an exam not behind a curtain yeah not behind a curtain not in the green <laughs> post-op area um and and the reason we're bringing this up is because th these these are challenges that we have been confronted with we actually had a center that came to us and said they wanted to do it in the hallway outside <laughs> of the operating room which right. couldn't get any worse i mean if you're going to do it right and based on the laser um, you know, there's laser safety issues, of course. Um, and then there's also issues as far you are doing a procedure and, and the procedure has to be done in a procedural space. Right. Uh, well, and you have to follow your instructions for use. You will find that some of the manufacturers are very specific about the temperature and humidity of the room that you're going to be in. And by the way, we're talking specifically about femto, but however, this goes for all lasers, argon, uh, CO2. Uh, YAG lasers, all of them have to be uh, handled, uh, you know, depending upon the manufacturer's instructions as well as the FGI guidelines and, of course, any safety. So, again, I, I just want to make that very clear. You, you, no matter what laser you're using, you cannot be doing it in a hallway. You can't be doing it in a PACU unless the PACU is totally self-contained and there's nobody else in that room. I mean, I really can't see how that could even be possible, right. to be honest with you. Uh, but the, the best place and the safest place is to do it in the procedure room. Uh, or the operating room again. Please follow. Or or, or or designated laser room. Yeah. Or a designated yeah. laser room. Right. I'm going to bounce over to Katie. Uh, Katie has been on the podcast a couple times in the last couple weeks. Hi, John. <laughs> Katie, you are our uh, newest employee here at Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Welcome on board. Um, I'm just worried. I'm not going to accept your resignation if you do decide after you leave the retreat here to do that. Just want to put that out there. No, I thank you. You've been an incredible. Uh, but you know the you're you're the newest one coming up. the The next question is, what is keeping you awake at night? or what was keeping you awake at night when you were an administrator? That's the question I'm going to ask everybody here at the table is what is keeping our administrators, our directors of nursing, our business office managers awake? What was keeping you awake in your center? I think the biggest challenge that is continuing on from the first time I was on this podcast, actually, is staffing, uh, you know, and it's not just nursing. Uh, I went through many uh, different areas of staffing challenges from surgical techs, my rad techs, anesthesia. We kind of already touched upon that, but I mean, processing. it was severely uh, significant. And with anesthesia, it becomes a point of whether or not you're even going to do cases because if you don't have that coverage, it really can hinder that. You know, a lot of these other staffing, you know, nurses can participate in those roles or function as those roles. So it was a little bit better, <laughs> but it's still a challenge. Um, and then my business office staff also was a, a challenge at times. So I would say across the board, I just was always trying to ensure that I had the right amount of people or enough people to take care of my patients the next day. You just recently came off of a survey uh, just before you joined us. What was the thing in the survey that you probably learned? What did you learn from a survey that you probably were a bit surprised? How much I didn't know my building, the life, life, safety. The life safety component of it. 
um, you know, or how much regulation there was to my building. Even after having a mock survey done, there was still a lot that came out of that survey that I really appreciated how much more uh, vigilance needs to go into ensuring you're doing your checks, doing your maintenance, doing everything that's required for the building. That was for me, the the biggest uh, gap that we had found and had the most efficiencies in. Luckily, most of them, all of them were fixable, but it's what we identified. Yeah, we've mentioned this a number of times before is that if you passed your last life safety survey or a survey, that doesn't mean that you're going to have an easy time. Of That's it. right. This was not our first survey, and yet they found things that were present in the first survey that just right. weren't identified. That's and, correct. And we've said that over and over on the podcast and <laughs> our boot camps and our educational programs. We cannot emphasize that enough, that every survey is going to be different. Every surveyor is going to be different. They're going to be looking at different things. And all of us surveyors are getting more and more training each time. Donna, what's keeping your clients awake at night? What I'm hearing from my administrators is staffing is a big issue. One of my centers is now dealing with also a lack of anesthesia staffing, and they're dealing with um, moving to having RN conscious sedation, which for them means having an additional RN in the operating room. So it just adds to the fact that they're already short-staffed. That RN who is performing conscious sedation can have no other duties in the operating So they are additionally short-staffed because they need another RN, and they already were short to begin with. So their staffing is, is compacted by missing the anesthesiologist in the room and now having to have an additional RN in the room. I think another challenge that I've seen with my clients is they know all the regulatory requirements they need to meet. And in general, they're very good at meeting them, but with the staffing the way it is, and they're in the numbers or they're in recruitment or they're in, you know, they're training these new people that they've recruited, having the time to do all those things that they know they should be doing. There's just not enough hours in the day. And I think that's what keeps some people up at night is knowing that in order to just keep the center running and training this, you know, recruiting the staff and training the staff and, you know, um, covering for, you know, the shortages that they, that there's other little things and big things that are getting delayed. Well, which brings up the last topic I want to talk about. I mean, I love to talk you know, for hours with you guys, but we're running out of time. Uh, but one topic that, that came up over and over again was education uh, from two standpoints. Uh, Jenna, you were just kind of alluding to that, you know, making sure that the staff, uh, you know, I mean, you got all these regulatory requirements, but ultimately you got to train your staff on how to do that. You know, we're working within our own company to be able to provide um, education to our clients, our, our staff, the staff members of our clients to be able to do that. Um, and we're trying to find the most efficient way to do it, recognizing right now that there is a real challenge in even finding the time. What's the most efficient way to educate so that they're prepared for a survey? Christina, do you want to talk a little bit about what we're going to be trying to do and and how, and, you know, not everybody's, of course, a client of Ambitorial Strategies, uh, but what they should be thinking about 
as they're putting these educational programs together. And again, how important it is that they uh, they take this training seriously and that they take the appropriate amount of time, even given this difficult staffing challenges uh, challenge period that we're dealing with. Yeah, I think, again, time is a factor. We don't have a lot of, you know, the administrators are fast facing not only having to cover the floor shortages of their center, but then also maintaining the education compliance that is required for the accreditation agencies. So I think what's important to remember is onboarding is probably one of the most important things to staff retention. Um, it's also a mandatory thing. Uh, but what we're trying to do is ease that process and make it um, easier and faster, uh, but still thorough. Um, so, you know, something as simple as having, you know, an electronic version of what you were once used to and having it easily accessible to all of your staff um, is one way to overcome that hurdle. We realize that not every center has the ability to dedicate an entire day to education, but we're trying to shrink that and make it more, accommodate, uh, more accommodating to centers. And another important thing to remember is it's not just the employees of the center, but it's also the providers absolutely have to have training. Right. And let's talk about leadership training for a second. And I'm going to bounce back to you, Katie. So, Katie, uh, as we end our podcast today, leadership is um, is challenging right now. You know, we we talked a lot about the challenges that our, our clients have, the challenges administrators have, the nurse managers dealing with the, all the things we just talked about. But ultimately, they need to be prepared to deal with these challenges and how do they deal with them? You Again, I'm picking on you because you're the most recent uh, escapee from uh, administration. <laughs> what types of education and what types of opportunities do you think are out there uh, and what should people be taking advantage of uh, when it comes to leadership training. And, and of course, we're talking a little bit about what we offer too, but <laughs> but it's not just us. Yeah, of course, not to be biased or plug uh, this in, but I will because it was such a huge uh, uh, benefit and uh, resource for me is not only ambulatory healthcare strategies, the boot camps that you have to offer through uh, you, you know the podcast, but the podcast. If anything, be sure to listen to the ASC podcast with John Gailey. I will absolutely plug that in because it really at least is the the least you can do is the best way I can say it. It's about an hour long. It gives you that um, little nuggets of information at a time to really digest it because it's a lot of information. When you're entering the ASC world as a new uh, ASC leader, as a new leader and a new to the industry, it's it's a lot of information. So, you know, even just starting there and then, you know, joining the patron program and then boot camps and then becoming a client, of course, you know, are all options. And ASCA has lots and lots of resources. I utilize them wholeheartedly uh, when I was first uh, an administrator. Uh, and then, you know, leaning on any uh, friends <laughs> that you have out there in the ASC world to say, hey, how did you do this? Because reinventing the wheel is not necessary in this industry. You just have to know who to ask. There's Facebook groups out there. There's LinkedIn groups out there. Just type in ASC administrator, ASC director, and you will find them. But uh, it, un unfortunately, fortunately, it is one of those things we kind of have to seek it out a little bit, uh, but it's it's out there. So Yeah, I really want to emphasize that this is a wonderfully welcoming community. And as some of you are new that listen to the podcast, some of you have been around for a long time. Uh, but I'm I'm still shocked sometimes when I go out and visit centers 
And I realized that the administrator feels like there's no support, that they don't have any help. And, and it's important to know that even, even if you can't afford to go to a conference, if you can't afford to, you know, be a member of your state association, uh, it's as unlikely that you will be turned down by somebody if you were to call them up and just say, listen, I'm down the street from you. That's right. You know, can you, uh, can you answer a question for me? Uh, I, I mean, and, and when I was running surgery centers, we were borrowing stuff from our main competitor across mm -hmm. the street, uh, and and they would borrow from us. We never had any. Nobody ever really turned us down unless they needed that particular product that same time. Right. So we're a very welcoming committee, a community, and I think that's important. I, I I love that comment that you know that that we we have so many things to reach people to reach out for, and we have to do that. I want to thank everybody uh, first of all for of course being with us for these last three days here for our retreat. It is one of the highlights of our years. We'll be getting together again in June, and you'll hear from us at that point. Please continue to listen to the SC podcast with John Gailey. Uh, pass the word around to your friends, and uh, we'll uh, we'll hopefully see you in Ask It 2024 coming up in April. In this segment, we provide an update on upcoming topics for the podcast, our virtual upcoming conferences and upcoming speaking engagements for John and his staff and other events in the ASC industry. So ASCA 2024 will be at the Gaylord Palms Resort and Convention Center in Orlando, Florida from April 17th through the 20th, 2024. And I'll be uh, moderating a panel discussion. I'll do, be doing a uh, session on financial projections, which is a brand new uh, presentation. I, I don't think I've ever attended a conference uh, that had a presentation on that. So I'm very much looking forward to doing that. And Sue, and I believe you've uh, signed up our staff at this point. Yes, a whole, I don't actually even know the number, but quite a few of us are going. And Lori also is give, is talking. Right. Uh, yeah. So uh, make sure you sign up soon because I believe that the uh, discounts are going to be ending soon. So if you know you're going, it's uh, probably wise for you to do it mm -hmm. sooner than later. And the Georgia Society of ASCs and South Carolina ASC Associations Joint Semi-Annual Conference and Trade Show is February 22nd and 23rd in Atlanta, Georgia at the Western Atlanta Perimeter North and on August 15th and 16th in Hilton Head, South Carolina, where we are right now. Right. At the Marriott Hilton Head Resort and Spa. Which is only about five miles from where we're sitting, as, uh, where we're sitting right now. And the Louisiana... Ambulatory Surgery Center Association annual meeting is going to be February 23rd in Baton Rouge, Louisiana at the West Baton Rouge Conference Center. The Gulf States Conference is June 11th through the 13th in Biloxi, Mississippi at the Beau Rivage Resort and Casino. The Arizona Ambulatory Surgery Center Association Conference is April 27th through the 28th in Scottsdale, Arizona at the Weston Kierland Resort. The Florida Society of Ambulatory Surgical Centers Quality and Risk Management Conference is April 4th and 5th in Daytona Beach, Florida at the Hilton Oceanfront Resort, and their annual trade show and conference is July 17th through the 19th in Orlando, Florida at the Signia by Hilton Orlando Bonnet Creek. Becker Spine Orthopedic and Pain Management Driven ASC Conference is June 19th through the 22nd in Chicago at the Swiss Hotel. The Texas Ambulatory Surgery Center Society's annual conference is July 24th through the 26th in Galveston, Texas at the San Luis 
Resort, Spa, and Conference Center. The California Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's annual conference is September 4th through the 6th in Anaheim, California at the Anaheim Marriott. The Tennessee Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's conference is September 12th and 13th in Chattanooga, Tennessee at the Chattanooga. And Becker's ASC 30th annual meeting, the business and operations of ASCs, is October 30th through November 2nd in Chicago, Illinois at the Hyatt Regency. Don't forget our upcoming business office managers boot camp, which will be March 12th through the 15th, 2024, presented virtually. For more information about that, you can go to asc-central.com. And on-demand versions of the ASC Director of Nursing, ASC Administrator, and our business office managers boot camps are available on our sister website at asc-central.com. And you might be interested in our June 2023 on-demand version of this multi-state conference, which is eligible for 16 AEUs and 4 IPCH credits. The conference includes great sessions on infection control, life safety, survey preparation, human resources, an introduction to the Medicare ASC payment system, pharmacy, and staff retention. And we do want to remind everyone to become a patron member of the podcast. The patron member program, which is hosted on ASC Central, is an exclusive membership website that provides a one-stop ASC regulatory and accreditation, compliance, operations, and financial management resource for busy administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers. And resources include some of our virtual conferences, links to uh, various information about the ASC industry, policies and procedures, forms, and fire and disaster drills, as well as our very well-known weekly drop-in sessions. Usually they're weekly, and they're usually right now on Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Membership helps to defray the cost of producing the podcast, including our research staff, travel costs to conferences, equipment costs, and production costs. For more information, please visit asc-central.com. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. If you found this episode informative, we encourage you to share it with your friends and colleagues in the ASC industry. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. We would love any feedback about our episode or ideas for future episodes by sending us an email at comments at ASCpodcast.com. We'd like to give a special thank you to our great team here who make this podcast possible. Our sound editor is Susan Cronkite. Our executive producer is John Gailey. And our dedicated research team is Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Calaritis, Jim Masters, Amy Cronkite, Lori Rodericks, Kathy Fodi, Donna Macchio, Christina Norman, and Katie Pearson. We couldn't do it without them. Our music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah, and the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers, Trivalence, offering a comprehensive and next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable data insights. MedServe, which offers the only digital narcotic cabinet specifically designed and priced for surgery centers, helping standardize processes and compliance, eliminate paper logs and prevent drug diversion. And Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, which is the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For information about any of our sponsors, please visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. 
This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. And we'd love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.